One of the great stories in all of the Bible has to do with uh, the final entrance into the land when Israel is there and Joshua comes and stands before the people. He realizes that, that everything that God had promised had, had come to pass in taking the land. It says, in fact, in Joshua 21 that the Lord gave Israel all the land that He had sworn to give them give their fathers to possess it. And the Lord gave them rest on every side according to what He had sworn to their fathers and that no one of all their enemies stood before Him. The Lord gave their enemies all their enemies in their hand. It says, not one of the good promises that the Lord had made to the house of Israel failed. In fact, what, how do you finish that, Carissa? All came to pass. She's laughing because we did a tape for her a long, long time ago. All, all came to pass. And Joshua then summoned all of Israel right before him and said, you know, you, you all need to make a choice of where it is that you're going to be and how it is that you are going to live. And uh, he said, you can either take up the gods of uh, all the nations, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, or you can follow the Lord your God. He said, if you follow the Lord your God, follow Him. If you're going to follow them, then choose what God you want to serve. There's lots of them. You can choose whichever one it is that you want to serve. But then he says, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And there Joshua was really setting about his course of his life and his family. He says, we are going to serve the Lord. Joshua's resolve is a sort of stand that really all of us need to make. We all need to say, as for me and my house, men especially, you only say, it's for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, in our exposition of the book of Hebrews, we have come to one of those places where really a, uh, we're called to a choice. A choice to serve the Lord. We've been going through Hebrews chapter 11. If you haven't opened your Bibles, I invite you to there. We've been going through in the past several months, I'm not sure how long it's been, probably three months now, we've been going through this book of chapter 11 of Hebrews and uh, really been looking upon faith and the people of faith. And the call of the chapter is to be like these people and not to be like them in all circumstances because we can't be like Abel or we can't be like Enoch or can't be like Noah. We don't have those exact circumstances. But to the extent possible that we have their circumstances, we are to imitate them by imitating their faith. We've seen Abel, Enoch, Noah and all the patriarchs, Abraham and Sarah. We saw her, Isaac, Jacob and even Joseph we saw last week. And this week we come to Moses, beginning with his parents, and then beginning really the first half of his life. Verse 23, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. We're going to stop there this week. We'll pick up on verse 27 next week. But these verses take us some 400 years after the death of Joseph. We were in Joseph last week, verse 22. These verses take us into the horrible practice of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who sought to suppress the Jewish people by ordering the murder of all the newborn males. The Hebrew midwives were told when you're helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it's a son, you should put him to death. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. It's a clear case of infanticide. That is killing of helpless 
infants. It's been practiced by many cultures for many years. Oftentimes, the case has been religious to appease gods. We read this even in the Bible about the Molech. Molech worshippers offered their, their children upon the altar. Even in the days of Manasseh, Manasseh, as it says in 2 Chronicles 33, caused his sons to walk through the fire. A clear reference there to the trying to appease the foreign gods, the Asherah that he was seeking to please and the Baals. Sometimes it's religious. Other times the case has been pragmatic, as in the case of the ancient Greeks and Romans, whose father looked at the child and decided its fate. If it was illegitimate or unhealthy or deformed or the wrong sex, these children would often be deserted. Oh, they didn't want to be guilty of killing these children. Instead, they'd be put in a jar and left out in a deserted place someplace so that the child would die by natural causes, either hunger, asphyxiation, heat, pragmatic causes because they were inconvenient to the parents. Other times, it was political as in what took place in ancient Egypt. Hebrew people were increasing in number and at first the Egyptians tried to enslave them by afflicting them with hard labor. But the more they afflicted them, the more they, they thrived. And so, Pharaoh came up with his idea, maybe one of his men, he says, well, we need to um, resort to the measure of infanticide. Ordering the Hebrew midwives to put the little boys to death. But we read in Exodus chapter 1, verse 17, that the midwives fear God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. And this little phrase here, letting the boys live, is the seed of my first point, which comes really by way of application this morning. We need to be like Moses' parents. We need to choose life. Because that's what we see here in verse 23, which talks about the Hebrew midwives and the two Hebrew parents. It's talking not about the Hebrew midwives, rather, but it's talking about these two Hebrew parents. Their names aren't listed here, but who knows the name of uh, Moses' parents? Anyone? Amram and Jochebed. That's right. Amram is a father, Jochebed is a wife. And when the son was born, they had a choice. Were they going to obey Pharaoh and allow their son to be killed, or were they going to fear the Lord and let the son live? On the one hand, we look at that and say, well, what kind of choice is that? I mean, of course they're going to keep their sons. I mean, just like the Hebrew midwives were doing, they were fearing the Lord, not obeying Pharaoh. So also, these people here who had a son certainly would do that as well. I mean, what person in the right mind would kill their child? Well, nobody in the right mind does. We have plenty of people in our society today who are doing that. Unless you think infanticide is only ancient creatures, ancient cultures a long way away from us. Unless you think that we've progressed greatly in our day and age today. Think again, our culture, maybe it's not the technical definition of infanticide, but what's taking place is very much the same in spirit and in heart. It's the practice of abortion, termination of a pregnancy. It takes a life in the womb. The only difference between infanticide and abortion is that really in one, it is is uh, allows the child to breathe first. It's really no difference after that. It's all a matter of when the murder takes place. It's not a matter of murder, whether it does take place or not. It's a matter of when. It takes place in our day and age. It takes place here in Rockford. <clears throat> if best estimates are, when I heard, 50,000 babies have been aborted here in Rockford since 1973. 50,000 is a lot. population of Rockford is only 150,000. Add the surrounding villages, Machesi Park, Loves Park, Trey Valley, maybe you're up to 200,000, maybe go a little bit beyond 250,000. It's a lot of 
That's a lot of people. That's one in four or one in five. Now, certainly the Rockford Abortion Mill services a bigger area than just Rockford proper. But it, um, many people come from, from uh, Wisconsin to come down. But regardless, even if that statistic is correct, that's a lot of, it's a lot of blood on our land. My call to you, church family, is to choose life. It's, uh, it's what they did. I mean, this is a good opportunity for us even to think again of the abortion cause. It's been a slogan, choose life, right? For many in the, in the pro-life movement. In fact, in many states, you get a license plate that says, choose life on it. And this verse is a really good one for causes to think about fighting for the unborn. I'm calling you to fight for the unborn. And choosing life is exactly what Moses' parents did. Rather than seeing their son murdered according to the law by the Egyptians, they hid their child for three months until he was unable to go undetected. Now, I trust you know the story. Phil read it for us here this morning that the, the child was, when Moses was more than three months old, he started to crawl around, starting to be louder. They couldn't hide it. So they put him in a wicker basket, covered it with tar and pitch, set it down the Nile. I think they're probably strategic about this. So there, there are some ladies bathing and put them down there. And it happened that Pharaoh's daughter saw the wicker basket, said, what is there? Sent one of her maids, I think, to look at it to see what it was exactly. And happened that when she saw the basket and opened it, she saw Moses. She saw a little baby. And uh, I, I sensed that her heart melted. She had compassion upon this little child. And she even said something about rightly concluding, oh, this must be one of the Hebrew children. And rather than... Um, bringing her to the local police department to have this baby killed according to the law. She transgressed her own father's law. said, let's save this baby. And uh, in fact, you know, the, the daughter of Moses' mom or Moses' sister came and was Johnny on the spot, Jessica on the spot, whatever you say, and was right there and just said, hey, I'll find someone to nurse it for you. And she said, go ahead, I will pay you. And so Moses' parents were paid for some time to nurse the child um, from Pharaoh until the child went back into Pharaoh's home. But at this point, really, I want to want to comment here about something that that I've really seen. Is it's one thing to think about um, abortion from afar. It's one thing to legislate legislation from afar, and you just kind of think about it. It's another thing when it comes up close and personal and touches you, as it did here. And I think that's what took place with Pharaoh's daughter. She she knew about the killing that was taking place, and she knew what her dad had said. And she was probably for that in some regard, but then when there was an actual baby in the hand, when it actually came to killing that baby, she couldn't, she couldn't do it. So she took the baby into her own home. Reminds me of the story. I've been, you know, I've told you I've got this uh, iPod, iPod Touch, which has been wonderful. I've just found out recently that you can read books on here. Just download them, and I've got a, several books on here wherever I am, spare minutes of the day. Put them on here. Then you can get them on audio as well. And so then you can listen to it really fast and kind of read it, and it's been, been helpful to me. But I've been reading Uncle Tom's Cabin. I'm not done with it. I'm only about a fourth of the way through it. But there was a time there where it, uh, Eliza just escaped across the icy river. And uh, Eliza was a slave, escaping for her life because they're going to sell her son. And so she, she comes, in fact, into the house of Senator Byrd. Now, Senator Byrd had just had a conversation with his wife uh, just previously about this whole matter of helping slaves escape. Because they lived up in Ohio, just across the Ohio River from Kentucky. Kentucky was a slave state. Ohio was free. 
and uh, they had a lot of slave escapes go through there. And, and Senator Byrd was working for legislation that basically said, we need to stop that. And it's not, it's not lawful to let slaves escape and come up through Ohio when they're illegal and they're running away in, in Kentucky. They ought to be taken back down there. And uh, so he, his wife disagreed and was arguing the abolitionist cause. Then went back and forth, kind of in theory. But then what happened was that night, a knock on the door and Eliza came. Worn out and exhausted because she'd kind of walked and run the whole way and hadn't eaten for a couple of days with her son. And um, everything changed for Senator Byrd. At least in that instance, he took Eliza, took, his, took her child, and then drove her someplace else where she was going to find safety. And that's right where I am in the story. So I don't, I don't know what's happening after that, but I think the principle is the same. When you, when you touch it personally, there is something that gives you a, a heart more for it. In recent months, I've had two events that have touched me personally. It's kind of stirred my heart a little bit. The first event I attended was this fall called Silent No More, put on by the Pro-Life uh, Initiative. It took place on the Peace Plaza of Perryville. And uh, so I remember about nine or ten women stood up to publicly confess that they had had abortions. And uh, then they just basically shared their testimonies about the evils and the, the wickedness of it and what it's done to them. And here's the thing that really struck me. It's one thing to think about abortion far off, but it's another thing to hear a woman's testimony about what it had done and devastated their own life. And um, I, I can't remember exactly, but I, all of these women were devastated by abortion. They, in their lives, were... Um, most, every single one of them says, there's not a day that goes by that I don't remember walking into that facility to have my baby boarded. Not a day goes by. Such a significant milestone. They're like, they knew well what they did. Some of them had such guilt and depression that they, they had suicidal thoughts, trying suicide. And it is only the grace of God that's got them over that even to be able to confess what has taken place. But it really, really struck me and about how, how horrific it is. In fact, even, even several of them said, I think, that uh, that sound they remember of going into um, the, the, I'm not sure, the place where the abortion takes place and there's the vacuum sound. The and that sound, you know, just continues to reverberate in their mind. A little bit like smells remind us of things. That sound does so that when they go to a dentist's office, they have difficulty because they remember, they bring them right back that day they had an abortion. It just rips their heart. And, um, you know, if they do that again, I'm going to make that known to you all. Just say, hey, it's a good thing for you to, to go to, to listen, just so you might, in your own heart, just see how evil and how wicked it is. And it's appropriate from your older children. Bring them as well. Um, so that if they, ever, if they ever get in trouble, they ever sin, they ever get in that circumstance, there'd be no way. They see the devastation there, they wouldn't commit abortion themselves. Or, if they have a friend maybe they know who's considering it, would do everything possible to stand in their way because of the devastation that's going to take place in their lives when they abort children. So I urge you to, to choose life and fight for the cause. You know, something just, I just know it made a big impact on me when I heard those testimonies. But another thing is, um, I saw this text and I said, hmm... I think I need to do another thing. I need to go down to the abortion mill and, and stand there and see what's happening there. And so Jerry's been doing that for years. Uh, Phil's been down there. A couple of other you have been down there. And so I went down to the Northern Illinois Women's Center. It's wrongly named. But uh, 
you know, basically when I went down there, I was encouraged by there were about 15 people down there. It was a rainy, drizzly, cold day, 15, 20 people. Uh, several of them had signs talking about how what abortion kills. And some were saying, hey, free ultrasound. Some were saying, please don't abort your child. There were um, people that were giving free literature. Um, I, I appreciate that. Um, just kind of literature about offering an ultrasound, about what an abortion really is. Um, and uh, what really struck me is when uh, these cars drove in, I walked, watched the girls walk across the parking lot in their sweatpants because they need to have something loose on. And they're walking in with a, a beating heart probably in their womb. And they're going to walk out without a beating heart in their womb. And it's something when you see some of the girls walk in. And some are young. Um, some are coming with bad circumstances, I'm sure. Horrific kind of things. It just broke my heart um, to see that. And I think it just helped to put another personal, personal feel on it, just like Pharaoh's daughter was. And I just want to say this morning, I'm thankful for the efforts that have been done uh, in terms of at, there at the abortion mill. I know it's predominantly Catholic. Um, and I know this focus is primarily physical rather than spiritual, the ultimate needs. But I'm encouraged by the, the number of people standing there. Uh, the literature passed out. I'm especially encouraged by the fact that as they walk in, they, they often, I'm not sure always, has someone on a megaphone who, who cries out something like this. Mom, Mom, stop. Stop. Please don't go in there. Do you know what they're going to do in there? They're going to rip your baby and suck your baby out of your womb. Don't do that. I care for your baby more than you do. Stop. You don't have to go. You can stop. Please stop now. Just something along that line. Just, just one last voice to try to stop them from going in. And uh, um, just think about the voice of God just saying, don't do this. Don't do this. And I guess I'm thankful for it. Because I said, what, what if nobody, what if nobody was there? How much easier would it be just to kind of drive in and say, oh, okay, it's legal according to law. People aren't here. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just go ahead and do this. But I'm thankful for the people down there uh, who do that. And if they weren't there, and, and I don't know, Jerry, they're, they're probably a core, my guess is maybe about 50 people who are down there consistently. Kind of, I mean, 20 at a time, rotating 50. 200 altogether. Okay, a lot of people. I'm, I'm thankful for those people. Just, just so it causes the, the women coming in to think twice about it. Why do these guys stand out in the cold and the rain? There must be something wrong here. They know it's something wrong, but it continues to help them. If there was nobody there, that would be a different story. But here's the email I received. Phil prayed about it. I just want to read email about Friday. I left oh, about 9.15 or so, and it was right about that time. It says, later in the morning when only a couple sidewalk counselors were left, only a few people were quietly praying, a young woman came out of the abortion mill. She told the sidewalk counselor that she saw an ultrasound motorhome and could not get the sign that said free ultrasound out of her mind as she sat in the abortion mill waiting room. The young mother was immediately walked over the motorhome. Once inside, was still anxious about the child within her, she wanted, but she wanted to see the truth. And when the scared young woman saw the ultrasound of her own baby in the womb, the little guy decided to put on a show for the mom. And with shouts of joy, she yelled, He looks like he's dancing! I can see his heart beating. Oh, my God. That instant, everything changed. She was no longer nervous, but was in love with the child inside of her, and her love will protect her child from the forces inside the Rockford abortion mill. 
would destroy human life for a profit. Mom was given a gift bag with baby items, a Bible for mothers, and contact information in case she needs help in any way, shape, or form. And that, that wouldn't happen apart from people just saying, hey, we got to stop this. It's bad choosing life. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. But you need to understand what took place that day. A soul wasn't saved that day. A body was saved that day. There's still work to be done in the life of this mother. I mean, that, that's just the front lines. I think, I think in terms of choosing life, you can think about this whole abortion battle in terms of a war. That's front lines on the battle where the guns are being shot. And not everybody in a war is on the front lines. You need cooks in the military who are going to feed the people to get on the front lines. You need medics who are going to take care of those who are injured. You need to have the commanders and the generals who maybe sit way back and strategize about how each is going to go. You need to have people back home funding what is going on. And choosing life for you might not mean standing outside the cold rain in the front of an abortion center, but it may mean making efforts maybe to help those who follow up. We've been involved here with the Pregnancy Care Center over the years. It means following up on people like this woman. Because that's where they'll be referred to. They'll say, oh, you need some help? Here are several numbers you can call. One of them is the Pregnancy Care Center, and they will help you. And the Pregnancy Care Center does a good job kind of taking ladies and, and seeing that their babies are, are cared for and born in the, um, in the initial opportunity. But, you know, even then, it might not be the work is done. Even then, you might need to be involved for fighting for life with like safe families like the deans are doing where you've got some mothers who maybe aren't equipped for life. A lot of times, mothers are, are boarding their babies because they're young and single and don't have any opportunities. Well, safe families can kind of come in and help and step up when, uh, when they're facing some crises with that. It might mean if you're going to choose life, you're going to fight for life by saying, hey, you know what, we, we can take someone in our home for a temporary time just to help these women, these ladies, people. Uh, maybe for you, choosing life means to be involved in adoption. Maybe you say there's room for another child in our house. A child that can't be taken care of in another place? Maybe in our house. Maybe it means a single mom enters our church and caring for a single mom who's had a child born out of wedlock, repents, comes to Christ. Maybe it means us, the church, being involved in that. Maybe it means giving financially, like goes back home in a war so that the fight can take place. Maybe it means making the issue known. I know we've made known the, the website abort73.com. Maybe it means... Purchasing some of those items and advertising, being a walking billboard for Abort 73, which, which is an excellent site which shows about all of what abortion is about and how bad it is. Maybe it means purchasing that. Maybe it's giving to some of these organizations. I don't know what it is for you. I really don't know what it is for church. I know that we've been involved in the whole spectrum of all those things. And I just encourage you to, to be involved and to choose, choose life. And, and maybe financially you can't do that. Maybe opportunities at home are too busy to do that. So maybe it's difficult for you. I know at least you can do one thing. All of you can. You can all pray. Pray for God to stop the evil, for righteous legislation, to touch the heart of pregnant, scared women so they stop. Pray for their boyfriends or husbands or whoever. Use them and abuse them to give good counsel to keep the child. You can pray all those things. God can hear those prayers and let's just let's pray to the Lord for those things. In fact, let me pray and then we'll get back to Hebrews about this excursion. Father, I think of the evil that takes place in our, in our city and um, it is horrific. If we would see what took place, we would be um, appalled. 
And yet, through the governmental authorities, this has been allowed. And yet, I thank you, we live in a, a free country that we can fight in righteous means and righteous ways, God, for it to stop and pass. And would, would pray, even as we've been since 1973, whatever that is, almost 40 years. Um, Father, I pray that you would, would be gracious to us and turn the tide. Um, politicians. Uh, people, may they see after 40 years the devastation it causes. Uh, may they see inconsistencies. May they see that things are really alive. May, may legislation help. God, but may you touch the heart of us. Um, and may we be found faithful at doing for what we can do to help the weak, weak and the helpless. I mean, you say, O oh Lord, that true religion is helping widows and orphans in their distress. And these are orphans. These are the helpless. And these are the ones we need to help. And so I pray you'd help us with that. In Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, well let's get back to Hebrews. That's Hebrews 11, verse 23. So the parents did choose life, and so I thought it was a good opportunity to kind of address that issue. Let's, let's look here, though. There are two reasons why Amram and Jochebed gave chose life. If you look there, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Here it is, first reason. Because they saw he was a beautiful child. And they didn't have him killed because he saw his beautiful child. And as I think about that, I think about how strange it is. I mean, one of the joys I have as being a pastor is uh, visiting those who have newborn babies. I always make the request, I may say, if you want me to come visit you, I'm glad to visit you wherever you are, hospital, home, and I'd come and love to, uh, love to take that baby into my arm, pray for that baby just first day out, set a pattern for their life. And, and I love doing that. I always take Avon along with me and have a great time. I'm always struck by a couple of things, how small they are. <laughs> I'm thinking about my David is like a newborn. You know, he's a three-year-old. He's so big. And, and the babies are so small. I, I marvel at God's wonderful ways in which he knits babies in mother's wombs with, with ten fingers and ten toes and two eyes and a nose and a mouth. How they can breathe right when they come out of the womb. Um, and I'm always drawn to give glory to God at those times. I think back about when we had our children, our five children, and um, just love visiting new parents. It's a happy time. It's a delightful time. It's a great time. But, quite frankly, just between you and me, babies aren't always that beautiful. Sometimes coming out with cone heads, sometimes, you know, their eyes can't focus, can't see, maybe some scratches, maybe some, you know, the hair, if they have a hair, is maybe pretty oily and natty. And, um, but in the eyes of the parents, though, okay, they're beautiful. In fact, most beautiful children born are our five children that have been born. <laughs> I don't know how it is that our five children were just so cute and how... Others aren't quite so. But you know what? That's how all of you think, right? And so here you think about the strange reason the author notes here. Why? Because it is. Because they saw he was a beautiful child. That is why Amram and Jochebed kept Moses safe. That's of every child, isn't it? Well, in some, some way. But there might be more going on here than meets the eye. And, and let, me, let me just kind of dig here a little bit. This word here for beautiful child... This is most of your translation. The NIV speaks about it, it says, because he was no ordinary child. Maybe hinting there's something else there. But this word for beautiful occurs only twice in the New Testament. Once here in Hebrews 11, 
23. And then another time in Acts 7, verse 20, also talking about the birth of Moses. And there it says that Moses was lovely in the sight of God. Now all children are precious in the sight of God, I'm sure. But Moses, there was something maybe particularly special in the eyes of God. In fact, one commentator says that Moses was the divinely favored one. Very especially beautiful in God's eyes. He was the appointed one. Hold that thought a little bit. Now think about Josephus. You know who Josephus is? He's a Jewish historian who lived around the time of Christ. And he said that during the day of Moses, there was an anticipation of a deliverer that was coming. In fact, here's what Josephus wrote. He was writing about the days of of Moses. He said, one of the sacred scribes, who were very sagacious in foretelling the future events, told the king about this time there would be a a child born to the Israelites who, if he were reared, would bring the Egyptian dominion low and would raise the Israelites, that he would excel all men in virtue and obtain a glory that would be remembered throughout all the ages. For this reason, Josephus says that Pharaoh ordered the murder of all newborn babies. Does it sound familiar? Who does that sound like? sounds a lot like Herod, Right? is that Herod heard that this Messiah, this Deliverer was going to be born in Bethlehem. And so, he said, well, go worship Him. I'm going to kill Him, basically. When he was deceived by the Magi, then he sent to have all the babies, all the male babies, two years and under, killed just to try to suppress the Deliverer, just like Pharaoh was doing. And here's something I find interesting as well, is that Jesus was protected in Egypt and Moses was protected in the king of Egypt's house. Egypt was a place of protection that God used. Now, it's not like this scribe was, just came out of the blue to, to predict this. God told Abraham, Genesis 15, verse 13, Know for certain, God said, that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they'll be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. So when Moses was born, this was about 350 years already. And so if if a scribe knew this prophecy of God promising that 400 years are going to be land, he's calculating, okay, in about 50 years, Israel's going to come out of the land. So maybe the deliverer is maybe going to be born sometime soon. Because how are they going to come out of the land but to have a deliverer come up and to lead the people? So it's not like this came out of the blue. This was just an application of the, of the comment that God made in Genesis chapter 15. And I, I think that with the anticipation of this deliverer, with the rising up of the number of people in the Hebrew people, that's why Pharaoh was seeking to suppress them. And somehow, some way, Moses' parents seemed to sense how special he was. He was beautiful in their eyes, in the eyes of God. He was going to be as it were. A, a Messiah, a deliverer, an anointed one who's going to deliver people of Israel out of their bondage. Well, there's a second reason why Moses was hidden by his parents. Again, it's verse 23. First of all, because he saw he was a beautiful child. And secondly, because they weren't afraid. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. They willingly risked their lives for the sake of their son. If they'd been found out, they certainly would have been imprisoned and may have been killed for hiding their son. I mean, if, if a ruler is willing to, to kill babies who are born, certainly it's not a far stretch then to kill those who transgress that command, and they may have found their own death. And such action on their part could have cost them their lives, but the fear 
of the Lord was greater than their fear of man. And they did as the apostles of old did, right? We must obey God rather than man. And they obeyed God rather than man. Let their child live. I just cause you not to think about my application point here. Choose life. You're not going to lose your life for the case of the unborn. I mean, you might, you might be imprisoned if you protest too strongly down there at the abortion mill to police come and can arrest you, but you're not going to lose your life. But let me ask you this. Even if you would lose your life, would you still choose life and fight for life? Because that's what Moses' parents did. Even when it meant their possible death, they, they put it all on the line. And I say the only way you can be pressed like that and crushed like that and facing death like that and still disobey is if you have faith. In fact, that is the point of verse 23. It's how it starts. It's the point of all of Hebrews 11. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. And so I would call you to do the same thing. Choose life by faith. Don't do it by your own gumption. Hey, we're going to do this. I mean, the thrust of Hebrews 11 is just, no, it's everybody. It's everybody by faith, God. This is what you say and this is what you hold precious and you, you hold these little ones dear and so I'm going to obey you and love you and seek to serve however I can. That's how all of our Christian service needs to be. By faith. Well, choose, choose life. We need to go on to our, our second point here this morning by way of application also. Not only choose life, but also choose Christ. Choose Christ. That's what Moses did. He chose Christ over the treasures of Egypt. Look at verse 24 again. By faith, there's the importance of faith again, right there at the front and center beginning. By faith, Moses, when he'd grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, there's that word choice, which I've gotten my, my points this morning, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ, there's my second point, choose Christ, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Alright, so you think about these verses, and implicit within them is that Moses knew that he wasn't an Egyptian. He knew that he was adopted into the royal family. He knew that the Jews were his people. And you think about, how, how do you know that? It's kind of a question Avon had. We talked about that last night a little bit. So I was finishing up my sermon. How is it they knew? Well, it could have been one because Moses remembered his parents. We don't know exactly how old it was when Moses went back to, went into Pharaoh's house. Here's what we read in Exodus chapter 2. The woman took the child and nursed him and the child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. That's all we know. How old is the child? We don't know. But maybe... Moses was old enough to remember what was going on back home. Um, think about John Newton, the slave trader. His mother died. His mother was the godly one, gave him a lot of spiritual input in his life. And uh, dad didn't. Dad was off on the seas. And mom died before John Newton was eight years old. And yet the things that John Newton learned from his mom continued to be with him and haunt him till the day he gave his life to Christ. So, Moses maybe was growing up, five, six, seven, it could have been that he, he knew that, remembered that. It could also be his name, so why he knew he was a Jew also. Exodus 2, verse 10, 
Pharaoh's daughter named him Moses, she said, because I drew him out of the water. Meshitahu. Meshi, Masha, right? To bring out. I brought him out. It's a Hebrew word there, right? So his name, Moses, was a Hebrew name that she gave him to remind him that's how you came from. So somehow he knew that he was a Hebrew. The Jews were his people. He wasn't an Egyptian. Maybe he looked at his skin. Maybe he was different looking. I'm not exactly sure. But somehow, some way, Moses not only knew that he was uh, of the Hebrew people, he also knew the God of the Hebrew people. I, I don't know how that is, is either because his knowledge um, of religion, of God, would have been maybe minimal at most uh, because he would have been trained certainly in the Egyptian ways. It says in Acts 7, verse 22, that Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. The Egyptians were polytheistic people. Many, many gods. Right? And sometimes some gods were stronger than other gods. All depend upon the king. In fact, there was one time one Egyptian king was monotheistic, but the others were polytheistic. And depending upon the whim of the time, some gods were stronger than others. And they, whatever, whatever Greek mythology did too, it's always the same. you got lots of gods that are all going to fight against each other for prominence. Lots of, of uh, superstitions, idols in their houses, considered animals like the bull and the cat and the crocodile, holy. Um, you think about, uh, there's a picture that comes to my mind, I think about hieroglyphics, I think about a, a man walking about with a hawk's head. You know what I'm talking about? That's like a typical Egyptian. That's the kind of religion that he certainly was trained in, but despite of all that religious training he got in Egypt, Moses obtained the knowledge of the one true God and, and followed Him, forsaking all the earthly benefits of the, his position in Egypt. It says in Acts 7.21 that Pharaoh's daughter took him and nurtured him as her own son. That gives lots of benefits for you. I mean, think about it. That means he's royalty in Egypt. He is, uh, had power as Pharaoh's grandson. He was lying to the throne if not maybe on the throne, at least, since he was adopted, at least co-heir, some, something close powerful-wise. He had privileges in the place he, he, he was. He had riches. Riches probably beyond measure. He probably lacked nothing he wanted. He certainly had lots of leisure. He had a future. He could have been high in the, the cabinet of the Egyptian ruling. He had anything he wanted. And yet, what did Moses do? He threw it all away. He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. That's right, verse 24. He rejected his adopted mother. I'm not going to be called your son anymore. He refused to be called the prince of Egypt, which he was. He refused to walk in sin, verse 25. He refused the treasures of Egypt, verse 26. I mean, do you have any idea what the treasures of Egypt were like? Vast. I mean, Egypt at the time of Moses was at its zenith, was high in power. They were, they were the country that dominated the world. They were the world power. They were the United States of America in their day. And they had more wealth, more servants. In fact, that, they, they built some pyramids that last to this day. I don't think we're building much that's going to last as long as 3,000 years, what they built. The manpower it took to build those things is amazing. Think about the, the resources to build those temples, those pyramids. A long time. Lots of slave labor. Unbelievable resources in their hands. 
probably lots of Hebrew slaves. You get it. We got a glimpse of the treasure in 1923 when Howard Carter, right, discovered who? What did he discover, kids? You remember what Howard Carter discovered? Maybe yeah, Nathan. King. King Tut. How do you say his whole name? Yes, Drew. Ethan. Tutankhamun. You're right. And he walked in there. And his testimony when he came there, he said almost everything in there is glinted with gold, is what he said. He was buried in a solid gold coffin. Mummy was covered with this golden mask, which we all see when we think about King Tut, King Tutankhamun. Over 20 pounds worth in gold. Half a million dollars. Just what put in the tomb. His tomb was filled with golden shrines, jewelry, statues, chariots, weapons, and clothing. And all we can do is we can guess, okay, if this is the tomb of one king, the other kings were just like this, burying them with all this kind of... We don't, we don't do that today. I mean, some is our religion. right? You can't take it beyond the grave. Everybody knows that in America, but they didn't know that then. But they had such riches, they could just you know, bury someone with a million dollars. Just kind of go away. We tax that, so the government takes it, and so you can't can't do that anyway. But anyway, that, that just kind of gives you a little hint of the riches they had, and Moses, being Pharaoh's daughter's son, had access to it all. But he turned it down. And so, what did he get in return? Look at verse twenty-five. He got mistreatment. <laughs> he got verse twenty-six, a disgrace. Exodus 2 tells us he was banished from the land of Egypt. Remember the story? Phil, Phil read, read it for us this morning that when Moses grew up, went among the brethren, saw the hard laborers, saw an Egyptian beating one of his Hebrews, one of his Hebrew people. He killed the Egyptian, sought to hide it. It was made known, and so he fled. And, and the killing of the Egyptian certainly is not right, but it was an expression of his heart to follow the Lord in every way. And Pharaoh tried to kill Moses, but Moses fled and settled in the land of Midian. And when he was banished, he was banished also from all the earthly comforts he'd ever known. He became a shepherd in Midian, became a sojourner in a foreign land. Here, here's some perspective of this. Okay, this is this is as close as I can come. Imagine Prince William, okay, Princess Diana's oldest child, who is heir to the throne. Queen Elizabeth is on the throne now. Prince Charles next, and then Prince William, coming just right up there. Imagine Prince William renouncing all of the monarchy of England, moving to the United States and becoming a farmer in Iowa. That's pretty equivalent. I mean, you laugh, but that's what Moses did and he did that for the sake of Christ. Moses had everything the world had to offer by way of material goods and power. He forsook it all to follow Jesus. But then again, isn't that what Jesus calls us to do as well? Listen to Luke 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate to see the cost if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation, is he not able to finish and all who observe will ridicule and saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, when he sets out to be another king in battle... When I first sit down and consider whether he's strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming in with 20,000, or else while the one is still afar away, he'll send a delegation, ask for terms of peace. So then, 
No one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. We need to hate family. We need to be ready and willing to die. And we need to give up all our possessions. And if you don't do all three of those things, you cannot be my disciple. That's what Jesus says. And Moses, by the way, fulfilled all three of those. He abandoned his family, refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He was carried his cross, risking his life for the sake of God's people. He gave up all his own possessions. He gave up all the treasures of Egypt to be a farmer in Midian, a shepherd. And he became a disciple of Jesus. In fact, look at there, verse 26. He considered the reproach of Christ, the reproach of the Messiah, greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. Now, that might shock you a little bit, thinking that Jesus didn't come until 1,400 years later. How is it that Moses endured the reproach of Christ? Well, Moses never knew the name of Jesus. That is for sure. But you need to realize that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And in the sense that He followed God, He also followed Jesus. All the Old Testament who followed God truly followed Jesus as well because He is one and the same in the Trinity. It's the only way to make sense of this kind of statement. He considered the reproach of Christ, the reproach of the Messiah, the reproach of this hope of a, of a deliverer. So Moses did. He, he chose Christ. And I'm asking you the same thing this morning. Have the faith of Moses and choose Christ. Choose Christ. Choose Christ over the riches of the world. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the desire of the flesh, the desire of the mind, the pride and possession is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away and also its desires, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Give up on the world. It's passing away. The smart thing to do is grab hold of the riches of God that are yours in Christ Jesus by faith. Choose Christ over the accolades of the world. Woe to you, Jesus says, when all men speak well of you. He says, if the world hates you, you know it's hated me before I hated you. If you're of the world, the world would love its own, but because you're not of this world, but I chose you out of the world, because this, the world hates you. Remember that I say to you, a slave is not above his master. If they persecuted me, they'll also persecute you. Give up the accolades of the world. We'll never be heroes in the world's eyes if we're followers of Christ. Like maybe the more we follow Christ, the more we'll see and know that in full reality. Second Timothy 2, 4.12, 3.12 All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Acts 14, verse 22, Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God by being faithful to our Lord, pressed in on all sides, the world not liking us. And they don't like us because we're um, bad or wicked or evil. They don't like us because we call their sin into account. Because we're telling them, drink from the fountain of life of Jesus. Just look to Him and be saved all the ends of the earth. Right? Renounce your sin. Turn away and follow Jesus. It's the best thing for your soul. And people hate that message. In fact, it was very interesting when uh, someone was shouting to one of the, the girls uh, going in to get an abortion, just um, pleading. I think she stopped. Um, she kind of turned and yelled at, at this man, made an obscene gesture her, his, towards him, and just continued to walk away. Just defiant. 
trying to do a good thing, trying to call them. All those people that are trying to do a good thing, they see them as enemies. Well, how are we going to do this? How are we going to choose Christ? What's going to power us to, to forsake the world, to forsake our family, love Jesus so much more than our family, to forsake, a, to forsake our wealth and to be ready and willing to die, taking up our cross? How do we do this? Well, two ways. First of all, by faith, for sure. But also, verse 26, we get another clue here, is by considering your reward. Look at, look at, look at Moses, verse 26. He was looking to the reward. He was looking for something greater. He, he, he wasn't looking. He saw all the treasures of Egypt. And, and by the way, verse 26, put things on a scale. He considered, okay, I've got two things on this scale. I've got the reproach of Christ on this hand. I've got the treasures of Egypt. Hmm, which one is greater riches? And when he weighed him down, reproach of Christ had better riches than the treasures of Egypt. Now, how can you say that? That to be reproached and reviled, to be blasphemed and scorned by, by the world for a love of Jesus. How, how is it that's greater? Well, the only way is if it's, if it's greater in another life. Because it's not like you get paid every time they insult you. Right? It's not, not like you, you get financial benefits from being reproached for Christ's sake. It, it's got to be future reward. And that's what verse 26 says. Why? Here's the reason. It's because... This is why he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches and treasures of Egypt, because he was looking to the reward. This is a theme in Hebrews. Right? Verse 6, Without faith it's impossible to please Him, for he who comes to God must believe that He is, His reality, and that He rewards. He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. That's what allowed chapter 10, verse 34, about these people to joyfully accept the, the people who seize their property. Because they knew that they had for themselves a better possession and a lasting possession. Because they, they saw something beyond this world. The patriarchs were looking for the heavenly city. Verse, chapter 11, verse 16. They desire a better country, a heavenly one. That's where Moses, or Abraham, um, was seeking a, a country, not their own. Moses, or Abraham was looking for for the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Verse 10. We see in chapter 13, verse 13 and 14, it says, let us go out of the city, for here we do not have a lasting possession. Rather, we're seeking the city which is to come. Therefore, as it says in Hebrews 13, 13, let's go outside the camp bearing His reproach. Right? That's carrying up the cross and going outside the camp right with Jesus. Because as we go outside the camp, Suffer with Jesus. We are rewarded with Jesus. And looking to the reward is key. I mean, that has got to be the thing which, which, which sustains you, presses you on, right? The Sermon on the Mount. Don't treasure yourself up treasures here, but treasure them there because it's better for you. It's what you need to do. It's the smart thing to do. And looking for the reward will be, by faith, will be the thing that powers you to press on in faith. Moses had eyes to see this greater reality. He was no fool. Jesus said, Was it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And the answer is nothing. Was it gain a man to profit all of the riches of Egypt and yet forfeit his soul? Nothing. But to gain your soul is way more valuable than all the passing pleasures of sin. Verse 25. Had Moses continued the way of the Egyptians, which was defined for him in verse 25 as sin, he would have forfeited his soul. And so he did the smart thing. And Jesus said, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. It's just 
the way of God is, is to say my life is, Paul says, is not of dear account to me. I count nothing so dear as merely to finish my course is what he said. Jim Elliot, right? He's no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Giving all for Christ. Giving it up for, for the sake of Christ and for the sake of the Gospel is what Jesus says in Mark 10, verse 35. Giving up your life for the sake of the Gospel. And I say, listen, when we give our lives to Jesus, we give up much. Okay? What we gain is far more. We give up everything we have, but we gain so much more. <laughs> we gain the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. We gain the everlasting smile of God. We receive a reward in heaven that Jesus gives to all those who simply put their faith and trust in Him. Trusting His sacrifice on the cross as the means through which His sins were forgiven and, and just trusting in that and living in that way. That's what it means to choose Christ. Is that where you are today? And this isn't just one past thing. Is oh yeah, I prayed this prayer once before and now I'm, I'm there. No, it's, it's, it's tomorrow. Take up your cross daily and follow Me. Every day. Clench the Gospel. Every day. Don't, don't think you're going to be righteous in your own deeds and your own works. But trust in God to help you and save you every day. So choose life. Choose Christ. Every day you can. Let's pray. Father, I pray that You would just stir our hearts to seek Jesus and to seek Seek the life that's lived by His power and Him alone. Um, would pray for the abortion issue. God, is far beyond any solution that I have. And yet, I think about William Wilberforce who abolished the slave trade. He labored his whole life to just abolish the trade. There are many more who had to come after him so as to abolish the practice of slavery. And there are people laboring their whole lives to see abortion stopped. And I plead that you would help reward them as you did William Wilberforce. Three days before he died, the bill was finally signed. We pray that you would help um, help in that cause. That we all might do what we can do to be believers in Christ and following you. Uh, I pray also, Lord, that you'd help us to choose Christ. To see as Moses saw that the reproach of Christ is greater riches than any treasures that we have. What we have doesn't even compare with, with Egypt. Our life is but a fleeting breath. As C.S. Lewis said, that our whole life long is merely the introduction and cover page to all eternity. As the book and the story continues to unfold of our lives and the joy that we can have. As Paul said, I consider the sufferings of this pleasant age not to be worthy to compare with the glory that is revealed us in Christ Jesus. So, Lord, we pray that we'd see that and know that and embrace that. Help us to glory in the Gospel. As we sang earlier, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my strength, my light, my song. No guilt in life. No fear in death. The power of Christ in me. God, relieve us from guilt. God, relieve us from clinging on to fear of whatever. The Lord is on my side. What can man do to me? Help us to see how great Jesus is. 
Help us to press on in these matters. And so keep us and guard us and guide us and protect us this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.